Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. Welcome back to Defining Deviant Podcast. I am going to continue on in a similar subject matter that I was talking about last episode, and we'll be jumping into the role of sex hormones in fetal development in terms of sexual differentiation, as well as processes that occur during puberty. If we jump back to the actual moment of conception, this is when the sperm and the egg typically meet together within one of the fallopian tubes within 24 hours of ovulation. The egg or the ovum does not ordinarily survive longer than about 24 hours, whereas sperm lasts about 48 hours, but it has been known to survive as long as five days within the uterus, so there's not really a black and white range to that. Once this fertilization has occurred, the walls of that egg become impervious to other sperm. And this happens so that no excess genetic material enters the eggs from other sperm. Sometimes more than one sperm does get in, but oftentimes this will result in a natural abortion or a what's called a spontaneous abortion because of the genetic variation that's occurring there that it doesn't want. I will note that there are stories of women becoming pregnant because they have two uteruses, so different sperm have impregnated different uteruses at different times, which is super interesting and we can talk about at a later date. If we consider the chromosomes, in a typical progression of events, the sex of a person is determined the moment that that sperm and egg cell meet. The ovum contributes the X chromosome, or what's known as the female determining chromosome, where the sperm carries the X chromosome, or a Y chromosome, depending on which sperm you get. Based on this, the genetic sex is going to be determined by the type of sperm which fertilizes the egg. So to be clear, the egg is always contributing that X chromosome, And then the sperm either contributes an X chromosome or Y chromosome. The joke's often about when people have children often of the same sex, people often make jokes about who's responsible for that. Well, in reality, it is always the sperm that is responsible for determining the genetic sex. The developmental message for the development of the fetus is carried in those X and Y chromosomes of the sperm which joins with the chromosome of the ovum. In turn, the combination of the chromosomes, either XX or XY, transmit to the actual instructions of the fetus. And this would also identify what the undifferentiated gonads at that time should become. During the first eight weeks of pregnancy, there is no external indication of what the sex of an embryo is going to be. This essentially is a neutral or indifferent stage where 
the chromosomes will later have an impact on the hormones that then lead to the actual physical differentiation, even though the chromosomal differentiation is already there. Depending on whether the individuals have received the XX message or the XY message, the fetal gonads will go on to either develop into testes around six weeks of development or ovaries at around 12 weeks of development. And at that point of development, the chromosomes don't have a large impact on the development, and this is where the hormones start to take over in the physical differentiation. The gonads themselves are responsible for the production of two fetal hormones that determine the development of both the internal and the external genitalia, and this is referred to as genital dimorphism. So the testes produce fetal androgens and the malarian inhibitory substance. The malarian inhibitory substance is responsible for masculinizing the genitals. So masculinizing. So typically what we would think of as the biological male attributes. And this occurs because the malarian inhibitory substance promotes the development of the wolfian ducts. And at the same time, it inhibits the malarian system. And that makes sense because it's the malarian inhibitory substance. Again, really brief synopsis of that. The testes, if you have a typically male fetus, are going to produce fetal androgens and the malarian inhibitory substance. These in turn promote the development of Wolfian ducts and inhibit the malarian system. These are relevant because the Wolfian duct and the malarian duct are precursor organs that exist within the fetus. So the Wolfian duct is that which usually goes on to differentiate into the male genital tract, whereas the malarian duct is the source of the female reproductive organs. During the third month of fetal development, the Sertoli cells of the testes within male fetuses begin to secrete that substance known as malarian inhibitory substance. This causes the actual malarian ducts to atrophy instead of developing into what we would call the oviducts or the future fallopian tubes and the uterus. As well, at the same time, those Wolfian ducts are stimulated by the testosterone and they'll go on to develop into the spermatic duct, the ejaculatory ducts, and the seminal vesicles. If those fetal gonads do not secrete testosterone at the proper time, the genitalia will develop in the female direction regardless of whether there are testes or ovaries present, because this is based on the exposure to specific hormones at a specific time. In typically developing female fetuses, no androgenic effects are going to occur, so androgens. However, the ovaries develop along with the malarian ducts, and since there is no malarian inhibitory substance, the Wolfian duct system also deteriorates. These are the physical differentiations that occur with the hormones during fetal development. But sexual differentiation is considered completed at puberty because this is the time in which the reproductive system in both 
females and males are considered mature. Puberty results in the production of sex hormones through a change essentially in the settings of the feedback system. It's not really clear what triggers puberty for many people, but we do know that the age of onset for menstruation, which is called age of menarche, has been steadily going down over a number of years. It now seems to be stabilizing, but it's still unclear what directly led to the effects, whether that was diet, stress, um, interaction with the environments, etc. And that's something that continues to be researched at this time. At the time of puberty, not only are the gonads or the sexual organs important to producing hormones, so are the adrenal glands. And this plays a role in sexual arousal and attraction, which I'll talk about more at a future date. The increase in sex hormones during puberty produces quite dramatic changes in the bodies of children, which makes them begin to appear more adult-like. These changes occur within the secondary sex characteristics, and these typically start around age 9 or 10, but it depends on the maturation of the adrenal glands and the production of androgen that occurs in each individual, so there is quite a bit of individual variation. Once those hormones do begin to see an influx during puberty, there will be increased growth of pubic hair, other hair such as beards or armpit hair in both boys and girls, and there will also be enlargement of the genitals. In girls who see an influx in estrogen specifically, there is an increased development of breasts as well as changes in the body proportions. So there is a movement of fat deposition towards the hips as well as the mons pubis, which is the um, front area of the vulva that we spoke about during the genitalia section. In boys, there is also a very significant change in their build, so they are able to put on quite a bit more muscle mass. And there is growth of the larynx and deepening of the voice, as well as that appearance of the facial hair. This time psychologically can be difficult for adolescents because although individuals are often perceived and treated as a child, they start to look like a sexually mature person and they may also start to be treated like a sexually mature person. This is particularly true of girls who develop breasts early on in their life who are often known as early matures. Within North American culture specifically, breasts and the showing of breasts in clothing are often assumed to mean that a girl is sexually available, and it often results in women being approached sexually, even though these women, or girls in this case, have often not even thought of themselves as sexual beings yet. What I mean by this is that sometimes a girl that is 13 or 14 starts to develop quite significant sized breasts and begins to be, say, hit on by people around them or catcalled, whereas previous to them developing their breasts, they really had not engaged in any sort of interactions like that, and it was directly a result of the physical development. Some U.S. research shows that girls who do develop early are more likely to experience early dating and intercourse experience than their later maturing peers. 
And some Swedish data has shown that early maturing girls also seem to be at risk of sexual harassment more because of their sexually mature appearance rather than their actual engagement in sexual activities. Adolescents who are sexually out of phase with their peers often face certain problems. So if we think of this in terms of the typical adolescent boy, boys who are late matures are often pushed out of group activities such as sports and leadership roles, whereas girls have a different sort of exclusion where girls who mature early might actually be excluded, whereas late matures maybe uh, feel socially deficient in terms of their physical attributes. If we think about puberty and sexual contact, how someone engages and behaves sexually during puberty is actually a product of a variety of sources. The hormone surge at puberty typically awakens a significant sexual interest and sensitizes people towards appropriate sexual stimuli, whatever that sexual stimuli is for them in terms of attraction. A recent review suggested that the average age that people actually first experience reporting sexual interest is around age 10, which actually corresponds to when we see the development of the adrenal glands beginning to mature. These studies showed that there was no sex difference in this phenomena and that age range was across both boys and girls. When we consider the actual physical changes that occur in puberty, changes occur within the individual, but it also is an external sign of sexual development that the person will often use to define themselves. When people perceive you as potentially sexual, they treat you differently and different opportunities may occur or not occur based on that understanding of you. Clearly, we know that one's gender role can have a significant impact on one's sexual activity. If you have been raised to think a certain way about women or about men or about other people, you have often acquired these cognitive scripts for the roles that are taking place. And it may be hard for you to understand that these relationships occur and that they occur happily and sex occurs outside of the context of a loving marriage. And that is just simply a different understanding. This is often where I come in in discussing sexual education and knowledge translation because adolescents have often not had access to adequate sexual education and are dependent on what the values have been taught by their families or what access they have, and this can result in a lot of internalized stigma and shame as they go on to develop their sexual identity. As I noted earlier, sometimes during the development of the physical characteristics and the chromosomal development, there can be anomalies or distortions of the genetic code, and this can result in different chromosomal arrangements. In some cases, we see that there are additional sex chromosomes added, such as in triple X, and that is an incidence with about one in 1,000 births. We also see poly X syndrome, which is five X chromosomes, and that is a very, very relatively rare condition. There's been about 25 cases since 1963. 
There's also the XYY chromosome. This impacts about 1 in 1,000 people. In Klinefelter syndrome, which is defined by an XXY chromosome, the individuals are male and they may experience issues such as small testes with reduced fertility. And oftentimes these individuals will go on to develop breasts at puberty because of the increased estrogen that occurs. And this is not that uncommon, and it is uh, it occurs in about one in 500 live male births, but many don't go on to actually develop those sorts of symptoms. So they, they may never know until they uh, have a genetic test that they have Klinefelter syndrome. Turner syndrome is another one in which an individual only has a single X chromosome. Individuals with Turner syndrome have a single X chromosome, and this occurs in about one to 2,000 or 1 in 2,500 live births, so it is relatively rare. As we noted last time, there are individuals who are born intersex who may have tissue from both ovarian and testicular tissue, and this means that they can have cells from both XX and XY cells, although they're not going to have functioning sets of both reproductive systems. Other conditions can also occur when there are hormone irregularities during different periods of fetal development. Congenital hyperplasia is when the adrenal glands of the female fetus secrete large amounts of androgens, which then cause the external genitals to be more masculinized or enlarged. A similar condition occurs if the mother produces abnormally high levels of androgens or has androgen therapy during the periods of sexual differentiation. The androgens masculinize the external genitals, and what this means is that the clitoris is often enlarged and would be somewhat resembling of a penis rather than simply a clitoris. The labia may be fused and resemble a scrotum. And this can result in individuals being identified and raised as boys, although they may identify as female or other. At puberty for these individuals, the secondary female characteristics such as breasts begin to develop, and often individuals will have surgery during this time period. Depending on the individual, they may also have internal structures, so full ovaries. Testicular feminization syndrome is another anomaly that can occur, and this is when a genetic male with androgen-secreting testes has the external appearance of a female, so what is called a blind vagina with no uterus. Such genetic males are insensitive to the actions of testosterone, it's a reflection on the inability of their system to make use of the hormones that are there. A final example we'll talk about is DHT deficient males, and these are individuals who are genetically XY but who develop external genitalia resembling those of females because of a specific genetic issue which prevents the conversion of testosterone into DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. Because these genitals look female, these individuals are often raised as females. However, at puberty, 
the accelerated testosterone reverses that deficiency and then their testes often descend and the clitoris-like organs will become penises. In one study that looked at 18 individuals from the Caribbean who had DHT deficiency, 16 of those individuals adopted a traditional male gender role after puberty. So what do these things actually tell us and why am I talking to you about all of these variations? It is clear that from these variations there is a really intricate and complex interaction between genetic and hormonal influences. So what does all of this tell us? Similar to, I think, when I talked about the genitalia is that there is a lot of variation and almost everything that we've talked about today is, again, variation that people have no control over. These are things such as genetics or exposure during prenatal periods or genetic issues where they can't convert certain types of hormones, but none of it has to do with the individual themselves. And as always, I like to end by stating that these issues lead to so much stigma among people, whether it's individuals that feel unable to fit into the physical characteristics they feel they should, whether they can't find the identity that they feel that they should, they can't get to the place that they want to be, a lot of it's related to both the external and internalized stigma that they experience. By opening up these conversations and just discussing the natural variation that occurs, I hope to make people more aware of the fact that these individuals are out there, they're valued, and they have lives just like we do. In terms of understanding more about this, again, I would recommend individuals check out the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity to learn about more of these topics and other research related to these topics, and I will likely be moving on to speak about sexual arousal in the next couple of weeks. So I will be fleshing out some of those episodes and they'll be a little bit longer, and I will speak to you then. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.